Hello everyone, welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. My name is Sophie Spink and I'm an analyst at Typhoon Consulting. Today I'm joined by Chen Yang, a consultant at the firm, and Elena Kalanina, an analyst at Typhoon. Welcome. Hi everyone. Hello. October has been a jam-packed month for news, but we've picked three stories that grabbed our attention to discuss in our October news review. Firstly, we'll discuss new infrastructure projects in China, specifically the Zhuhao-Macau Bridge and the high-speed rail link between Hong Kong and China. Next, we'll cover a breakthrough in preventative treatment technology in China. And finally, we'll debate some of the economic consequences of Saudi's journalist scandal. So first up, this month saw the opening of the Zhuhao-Macau Bridge, the world's longest sea crossing construction. But this wasn't the only major transportation project recently opened in China. A high-speed railway network was also finally finished between Hong Kong and Beijing, the Guangzhou-Shenzhen-Hong Kong Express. So Chen, can you just tell us a bit about the significance of these projects? How are they going to benefit the people in the area? Yeah, sure. So the Zhuhai Macau Bridge connects three key coastal cities in southern China, including Hong Kong, Macau and Zhuhai. And the railway link connects Hong Kong with Beijing via Guangzhou and Shenzhen areas. So I think the significance is twofold. For local people, uh, nearly 100 million people, it will bring a lot of convenience to their transportation in the future. In the past, traveling between Zhuhai and Hong Kong, for instance, will take up to four hours. But with the new bridge, it cuts down to only 30 minutes. And also the rail link provides an alternative way to travel from Hong Kong to mainland China. So unlike flights to mainland China, which are often impacted by traffic control and severe delay, railway link will make the traveling a lot more convenient at low cost. But I think another significance of these projects are on the strategic level. So it is part of China's plan to create a greater Bay Area, including Hong Kong, Macau, and nine other cities in southern China. And at the same time, it also expands or further blurred boundary between Hong Kong and mainland China. So that's where a lot of uh, controversies come into existence at these infrastructure projects were up and running. Chen, I know that you're quite a common traveler from Hong Kong to China. What do you think, just from your own observations, would um, these projects get enough people to get the right returns? I think for the railway link, definitely a lot of people will be interested to try an alternative way to travel to mainland China. But for the bridge, uh, I'm not sure about how much the usage will be in the future. Because a lot of people say this project is more symbolic than practical because it shows how Hong Kong can be further connected to mainland China physically. And just finally, Chen, you briefly mentioned that there's been a little bit of controversy over both projects. Um, and I've definitely seen some negative press uh, over the last few weeks. But can you just tell us, maybe give us a few arguments from either side of the debate and what, why these projects are being controversial? I think whatever you do, as long as it's related to mainland China, you will always see some negative press <laughs> in Hong Kong. Um, but for these projects, um, the main concerns are from three, three perspectives. One is the environmental damage. So for instance, a lot of activists have pointed out the potential harm of the bridge project to marine life in the area. Um, and the second concern is from the economic perspective. 
like I said just now, people are worried that there will be no, not enough economic return from these projects uh, if the use is, is too low. Um, but I think the biggest concern is from the political perspective. So the rail link, for instance, involves a joint checkpoint. That means uh, Hong Kong will have to give mainland agents access to a part of its territory in West Kowloon, um, and mainland agents will be able to enforce law in Hong Kong territory, which is against the, the constitution. So I think that's the part where people challenge a lot and protest a lot, and it will be a bigger challenge from the legal and security perspective in the future. So continuing with the news on China's recent developments, one of China's biotech startups has just recently made a breakthrough in preventive treatment. So Dai Wenyon, a founder for Paradigm Startup, has recently developed a tool that can predict patients' risk of developing diabetes. Sophie, before going any further, can you give us a quick uh, overview of what this tool is actually all about? Yes, so Full Paradigm has claimed that this predictive tool works with 88% accuracy rate and can predict up to 15 years in advance of whether someone will develop diabetes to when they would actually have been diagnosed. And the tool uses AI technology and machine learning. But I think the really crucial thing is that this could potentially be applied to other diseases in addition to diabetes. So the startup claim that they would be capable of making such predictions regarding other health problems. So they've talked about diseases such as heart and age-related diseases, um, which obviously also cause a significant burden on the public health care system. Interesting. So why do you think this breakthrough was made in China? Because obviously we usually expect this type of inventions to be coming from more developed, more advanced countries, in, especially in biotech industries such as United States or Japan, who used to lead in this industry? Yeah, so I think in terms of leading countries in the biotech industry, yeah, if you look at the number of patent applications and treatment approvals, then the US still ranks number one globally, and China's still lagging a little bit. Um, but what's clear is that in terms of research and development spending and growth, this is where the Chinese industry is booming. So, for example... R&D research spending doubled in China between 2008 and 2012, specifically on biotech, whereas in Japan and the US, there was only 1.5% growth in exactly the same time period. So it's, it's a much slower growth industry at the moment. Um, and China's estimated to be the leading spender by 2019. So it is, as you said, catching up very quickly. And I think in terms of why a Chinese companies made this breakthrough... I think China's been particularly successful in the field of big data, essentially due to rules concerning data access. So in lots of other nations, including the US and Japan, um, which may in, the, in previous years have been considered more technologically advanced, patient data is very restricted. Whereas in China, the information is so much more readily available. And this is really crucial for advancements in this field. Why do you think that is so important for these type of inventions? So we said that um, this tool uses AI and essentially through machine learning, it needs the data initially to then make predictions in the future. So 
for this finding, for example, they took data from over 170,000 patients, which was collected, and this included factors such as gender, blood sugar levels, weight, smoking and drinking history, and education levels. And then the machine learning was used to predict which patients in the future might be at risk from diabetes. Um, and I think another point that's quite important to bring up in addition to the data rules is also the support that biotech companies have received in China. So Beijing has identified that they want to really push for the pharma and biotech sectors um, and they, they want growth in these sectors in comparison to more traditional areas such as export-led manufacturing. So there's both national funding and then there's also local government funding because they want to also promote these higher value industries. And, you know, as things like the environmental concerns become more prominent, it's better to be putting money into things like biotech, which are much more sustainable than manufacturing. And so, for example, Shanghai and Beijing have both allocated 10 billion yuan each to promote and enhance these sorts of ventures um, and a lot of places are developing life science parks so there's in addition to these um, data data rules in China there's also incentives and there's also been tax breaks introduced to help push forward the biotech industry in China you think it's basically a combination of factors rather than just yes one contributing yeah I think specifically to this breakthrough um, because it's AI-based, I think the availability of data is very crucial. And we've seen scientists say that essentially the more data you have, the more likely you are to get a accurate and predictive tool. Um, but more generally in the biotech area, then the funding and the incentive, government incentives are also, also important. In the medical healthcare space, a lot of companies claim that they use AI or machine learning. It's almost like a buzzword these days. So how reliable is the technology? Yeah, completely. So I think it's important to remember. So they've said that it's 88% accurate. This is what Four Paradigm have released in a press statement. There have actually not been any external... Um, validation. Validation, exactly. So perhaps we need to wait until there's been some external research done. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to remember is that they haven't actually developed this technology to be used with any other diseases yet. They've, they've said that it should be applicable in the future, but we're yet to see any proof that it can be used for, say, heart disease. I think when you use AI or big data, it's easier to find out the correlation instead of the causal relations. Mm -hmm. So when it's applied to the medical space, when you have certain symptoms, you know you are getting diabetes, but it's harder to use AI to find out the cause. So it will be harder to find out the root cause and get it fully cured. I think, yeah, I think there's, it's important to remember that the technology is still being developed and so it would be unreasonable to assume that it's going to be 100% accurate right now. Um, but perhaps we can look at it as more of a, you know, what is the best solution that we have at the moment? If our understanding of diabetes at the moment is that there's X, Y, Z that are causing it, if AI can help us understand that in more detail, and perhaps, as you said, you know, it's, it's often a combination of factors rather than just one, then perhaps that's a benefit. So, yeah, maybe we should be looking at it more as a developing technology that is definitely not perfect, but...
but um, hopefully it will improve our understanding. Um, Sophie, if you say that one of the main reasons China has made this adm- advancement what seems incredibly positive breakthrough due to lack of data privacy policies, uh, do you think other countries should follow its example and look to increase availability of data? Or, will, um, or should we be worried about negative consequences from a lack of privacy policies? So this is such a hotly debated topic currently, and there seem to have been endless stories recently in the press concerning privacy scandals, data leaks, cyber attacks, and data breaches. So this question of how information should be handled also brings together almost all industries. So, you know, large tech tech companies, retailers, finance firms, and obviously biotech and pharma companies. But just to focus on biotech data rules... Obviously, when we see a headline that there is the potential to predict diabetes up to 15 years in advance, and that in order to successfully implement machine learning technology, we do need these large amounts of patient data, then I think it might seem tempting to say that data policies should be relaxed, as they are in China, to encourage further breakthroughs. But we need to remember that along with the positives also come a variety of concerns. So in addition to apprehensions over how personal data is stored and shared in China there's also been a lack of constraints on human trials so there have been debates especially on social media over scandals involving unsafe vaccines contaminated foods and tainted medicines I think almost a much bigger concern is that these laws and regulations of data that we're talking about also cover a much larger area in the biotech and pharma space. So they're also going to be related to predictive medicine, gene editing and stem cell research. So with the advancements of all these technologies, there's also the possibility of making positive contributions, as we've seen in this story. But there's also a big risk that they're going to be used with the wrong intentions. So if there's a lack of regulatory control, as there is in China, then... um, these scientists may be able to, for example, produce designer babies so that parents can choose their children's abilities and genetics rather than using this technology to reduce the prevalence of serious diseases and handicaps, which is what we, as a generation, hope that this technology will be used for. Um, So I think, ultimately, progression towards understanding and predicting diabetes is obviously a positive Um, But these discoveries do need to be viewed with caution and we need to look to understand both the advantages and the disadvantages of a relaxed research environment such as that of China. And I think as these technologies develop over future years, there needs to be a relevant debate about how we utilise these technologies and we also need to attempt to put in place necessary precautions where possible. I think the main concern is that there will always be researchers or government individuals who will be more interested in financial gain and power rather than the healing purpose of medicine. And specifically talking about China, the concern is that the ethical standards for research are being set by a government that has often prioritised power over ethics. So, I mean, just to give you a quick example, the Chinese Ministry of Health only established an ethics committee in 1998, and that was when the first set of gu- guidelines were outlined in the industry. So it's it's very far behind these other industries that you've been talking about. And so I guess 
the challenge is ensuring that rules and regulations both exist on paper, which for China, they may not quite be there yet, um, but also crucially that they're actually applied in practice. So the last piece of today's news is concerning the events following Saudi's acknowledgement of Jamal Hashoggi's premeditated death. So the scandal over the murder of journalist Jamal Hashoggi, who was known as a major critic of Saudi rulers, and especially of Saudi's crown prince, has prompted numerous political and business leaders to distance themselves from the Riyadh. Elena, can you give us a brief recap of what's happened following this controversial event? Yeah, sure. So continuing your story, um, in the week following the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, we have witnessed a growing backlash coming from the Western world. So, for example, foreign investors have sold off over a billion worth of Saudi stock and um, we have also seen a backlash coming from the media industry as well. So one of the U.S. actresses, um, Scarlett Johansson, has rejected a funding from Saudi Crown Prince for the upcoming film. And on top of that, top executive officials from the United States and Europe have boycotted the investment conference held um, last Tuesday. Okay, so obviously there's been a lot of backlash, but I have read also that there's been an exception in the form of um, the Masayoshi's son, who is the founder of the SoftBank Group, and it's a famous $100 billion vision fund in which Saudi is a major investor. Exactly. So can you talk to me about maybe why the Masayoshi's son has remained neutral in this event? I would you know, almost expect there to be some pressure, both internally and externally, for him to take a stance. Of course, yeah. So the situation with Masayoshi-san is a bit tricky uh, because although um, his vision fund comprises a lot of different investors, uh, Saudi money comprises almost 50% of the total investment coming to the vision fund. So obviously uh, Masayoshi-san wouldn't want to directly oppose its main investor, uh, especially in the incident which wasn't technically proven to be true and any accusation towards the Saudi uh, do not have any practical ground. So just to give you um, more reasons on why Masayoshi-san remained neutral to this event is to look at the distribution of the investors who comprise the vision fund. So as I mentioned earlier, 50% come from Saudi itself, but at the same time another 20% come from uh, Abu Dhabi, who still have really good relationships with uh, Saudi and especially its prince, Mohammed uh, bin Salam, uh, Salman. So there would be no pressure coming from this side. Another 30% um, come from SoftBank itself, which leaves only 5 or slightly more than that percent from other different um, international investors such as Apple and um, multiple Qualcomm's companies which have been silent ever since the event started, um, which is believed to be um, due to their close ties to Saudi as well. There are a lot of developments between these companies and Saudi government going on right now, so uh, they wouldn't want to lose this friend and potential investor in the long term uh, unless some evidence of their uh, connection to uh, the disappearance of the journalist would come out. So, of course, such close association of this 
venture and its director with Saudi's money might be detrimental for its reputations, but Masayoshi's relentlessness to be involved in the scandal can also be explained by the absence of uh, internal pressure coming from Japan or any other Asian countries where the murder of the journalist wasn't really covered by the media as much as it was in the United States or Europe. And do you know why that, that was? Why was it not covered in Japan so much? Japan is obviously quite closed-up country, so I think anything that's happening outside of Japan and not directly threatening Japan would not be covered by the media as much as it would be if it had direct implications for their economy or policies. Okay, and so obviously... As you said, this was very controversial in some other Western countries. How do you think this will impact Saudi's economy going forward and any investment plans? So, yeah, as I mentioned, um, this scandal has caused an outrageous reaction from the Western business world. So one of the examples of this backlash coming from uh, Western companies uh, was of Richard Branson, and he was actually the first one of the first executives who reacted to this journalist scandal and uh, Saudi's inability to give transparent explanation to Jam- Jamal Khashoggi's disappearances. So Branson, uh, Branson has decided to pose the talks with Saudi over the investment into virgin space business and has completely cancelled its involvement in the development of Red Sea as a tourist destination. So another example would be Ernest Moniz, a former US Secretary of Energy, who also put on hold his work with Saudi by withdrawing himself from the advisory board of NEOM project, which is Saudi's attempt to build zero-emission, fully functioning city. So Mohammed bin Salman um, was also known to have started several negotiations with Google and and Amazon earlier this year to help Saudi economy become more digital and agile. However, there weren't any statements made from the side of these mentioned companies. Nevertheless, if the situation worsens, we would definitely expect a significant reaction from them as well. So these early reactions are highly indicative of possible consequences for Saudi's long-term developments if the situation takes a negative turn. Okay, well, it will be really interesting, I guess, to see whether these both individuals and companies that have taken a stand actually maintain that position in the long run because... I can imagine a situation where they, you know, take a stand for a few weeks and then they get tempted to take the investment back. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes. Also, please visit our website at www.typhoonconsulting.com for more industry points of view. Thank you so much for joining us today and we hope you will listen again next time.